talk a bit tonight about the joy of learning or awakening of intelligence. This is a Buddhist meditation center, but you could also look at it as a kind of school. That is, some of us have been here more than a week now. And learning has been emphasized. In the school, the subjects are not mathematics or physics or literature, but loneliness, restlessness, silence, eating, whatever. And we study the subjects not as an external um, academic subject, but we are both what we're studying and the student. Um, In referring to it as awakening of intelligence, I think to begin with, the word intelligence has to be disinfected. And many people feel a certain stirring with just the mention of the word, just sort of either feel some of the bad memories of high school or grade school where it means your score on an IQ test or some index of your worth in the universe, some numerical index. Anyone feel any stirring at all? What I mean by intelligence is not intellect or the rational mind, although intelligence can certainly use that and that can be considered a worthwhile function that a human being can carry out. Or is the use of thought, logic. I'm not trying to discredit it, <clears throat> but it's not what I basically what's, what we're getting at tonight. Um, for quite a while, Intelligence has been taken to mean intellect, the rational mind. And so things are either rational or irrational. And what I'm talking about perhaps is supra-rational. It's above rationality. It's not using one plus one equals two and A, B, C, D mind directly. But it's not irrational. It doesn't mean that you're in some way confused or on a trip, a drug trip, or something like that, or drunk. So there's a form of intelligence which I feel that we've been developing here day in and day out, which is not what most of us have been thinking of as um, intelligence for quite a while. Maybe now it's changing. One way to put it, it is a form of learning that's non-accumulative. As if you think of the way of learning that most of us mean by the word learning, we accumulate, or it's knowledge. We learn something, it becomes part of our computer, our memory bank, and all kinds of interesting things can be done with what has been stored. 
what has been added to what has been stored, and then can be used, and it's a useful thing in the world. This building was put together by that, by thought and by knowledge, accumulation of knowledge in various areas that we call engineering or architecture. And so it's something you acquire. And often it takes time. And in a certain sense, more of it means better. A lot of what we learn here, you learn it in the moment and that's it. It doesn't necessarily have any more value than in the moment. You learn what has to be learned in that moment and often it can even coincide with action. That is, the direct seeing of the situation as it is can be the action itself. There's the clarity. It makes it so obvious as to what the correct action is at that moment. Or the the level of understanding is appropriate for what's happening in that moment and may or may not lead to action, depending on what you do with it. Very often, that's it. In other words, if you then make it into a conclusion, then it becomes knowledge. Then it's the first kind, the kind that you write in a spiral notebook, use index cards for, loose leaf books, etc. And it comes out of awareness this kind of learning. That's what we've been doing. You could call it sensitivity if you like. The occurrence of it is all over the place. And in a way, every time you meet a challenge in life directly, and don't veer from it, that is, are vulnerable, open yourself up to it. Although sometimes the challenge uh, is not anything threatening. Sometimes it is. At that moment, you become more sensitive. Something is being developed. And if your action is in accordance with a clear perception of what's happening, that also is, uh, that quality is being deepened in, in us. And it leads to more simple and direct action in the world. See if I can give you a um, First off, an example of what isn't learning, what blocks learning, conditioning. And we all have come here with a lot of conditioning based on our past. And that keeps reinstating itself. It continues to jump between us and what's happening. And very often, it's inappropriate. So we're literally living in the past. There's only the present. It's very fresh all the time, but we don't necessarily meet it directly. We meet it through yesterday. One example that has helped me a lot has been something I read in a Boston newspaper some years ago, and it stayed in my mind. It's come up hundreds of times, perhaps because it happened to an animal. It was even more vivid and clear in terms of guidance for us humans. This was a bear, about a bear in a zoo in Austria. And according to this newspaper article, the bear was tormented. It was in a cage and was treated very poorly. 
The zookeepers were cruel to the bear. There was only one bear, no companions. The food was no good. Small cage. Children used to put broken glass into food that they would slip under the bars. The water was dirty. And all the bear had was a small cage. And so a life pattern evolved where the bear would just walk around and around and around. It had a certain home range. And that's what it would do when it wasn't sleeping. It was just walking around that the, the uh, area within the cage. So much so that a deep rut was dug into the ground of the cage. Okay. At a certain point, some enlightened zookeepers from another zoo in Austria came and they saw this and they were appalled and so they purchased the bear and they transferred the bear to this new zoo, a kind of modern uh, bodhisattva type zoo. And this, there weren't even bars here. It was just a, a ravine where the animals could play. There were many bears, good food, fresh water, a totally different experience. Well, the, the, the bear was delivered to this new zoo and wouldn't leave the cage. It was delivered in the cage. They had to put fire to the bear's rear end, finally to get the bear out of the cage. And then here are all this whole totally new situation of other bears, good food, etc., plenty of space, and the bear continued to walk the same dimensions. At the end, the article uh, was written, it was approximately almost a year and a half, and the bear still had not changed. And they don't know what happened to the bear, but at that point, the bear was still following the same, it had a cage in the mind. Mm -hmm. And that story was so powerful for me, it just knocked me over. I mean, it was just... uh, because it's so obvious, so vivid, and our cages are much more subtle. And so you come to a place like IMS, and it's a strange kind of school. In a way, what we're doing, I mean, one way to look at it, I I do look at it this way, it's in part, we're rehabilitating each other from some of the damage of the educational system among other things. And in this school, it's rather strange, like the teachers don't talk very much, they sit up there quietly. And fortunately, I think, probably, many of you agree, no grades, no certificates. Maybe that'll change if IMS becomes famous. But so far, no certificates, no grades. And in a way, there's no visible subject. All you see are people walking around and sitting quietly and eating. And yet, I think that a large part of why we're here is to re-educate ourselves. And we're encouraging one another to do that by ourselves, even though there are some hints from books, from other people, and there's support. Apparently, it's very difficult to begin to re-educate ourselves Apparently, we humans are afraid of ourselves. We're afraid to really be with ourselves. And it seems to help if we come together in a group and encourage each other to stay with it. And so then the practice of awareness begins. And 
as you all know, we're encouraged to, in an unrelenting way, to pay attention to absolutely everything that's happening and direct attention, bare attention we call it. And of course, all that conditioning, all the cages that we've stored up, they're in the computer and they're fed out onto reality and often the very spaciousness of the situation is so much silence that sometimes, at least I hope, the cages become transparent. You can see them because the situation is so open that you see that it's us who keeps remaking these situations over and over and over again. This kind of learning that goes on, this non-accumulative learning, it's hard to point to and say, if you conclude about what it is, you've already destroyed it. So in a way, if you open your mouth, you're wrong. But what it is is sort of with awareness directly seeing the way things are. And it's intimate. It's a direct experience. It isn't someone telling you something about reality. Let me give you an example of um, an unfolding for one yogi. It doesn't always happen this in such a perfect linear way. But this is an actual person like ourselves. In the sitting practice, during one sitting, this person noticed a lot of rehearsing, that the mind was doing a lot of rehearsing. Particularly on the way to social encounters. You know, you're about to meet someone, and then I'll say this, and they'll say that, and then when they say this, I'll say that, and then maybe... So the whole thing is being worked out kind of a um, dress rehearsal. And the person had not realized to what extent their mind was constantly rehearsing and so, so reported that, you know, in an interview. And so just normally, okay, great, you saw that. Fine, go back to your cushion, whatever. Now that that was on the agenda, the person was able to see that um, rehearsing was a, a recurrent event in their consciousness when it would come up, they'd be much more likely to be with it. They could see it. They could see that the rehearsing had in particular to do with meeting people. So it became even more precise. And over a period of a few weeks, the story uh, that I'm reporting, this unfolded in a very beautiful way, starting off with just simply noticing that the mind was doing rehearsing. Then the person noticed that Largely, the rehearsing had to do with reassurance. That is, in this um, dry run or dress rehearsal, it would work out so that everything would work out. You know, you'd say the right things and they would say the right things and it would be a Hollywood ending. As the watching, as the person became more sensitive to this event of rehearsing and started to see different nuances, at a certain point, they walked through rehearsing to what was in back of it, not by trying to walk through it, but simply by letting the rehearsing be there in the light of awareness. And what they found was, as you might expect, insecurity. Tremendous insecurity about interpersonal contact. No trust that a uh, fulfilling conversation could happen naturally and spontaneously. 
And so it had to be rehearsed and rigged, well thought out. That would give the person a feeling of confidence so that they could then go into the conversation in a reasonable state of mind. But as they reported, it just about never happened the way they rehearsed it. In fact, obviously it never happened that way. Okay, at this point, let's say if we asked a freshman psychology class, you know, who've been reading books on psychology, well, why do you think this person was rehearsing so much before? Probably most people would have said, oh, they probably felt insecure. And you could read it in psychology books. And that's nice. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. But that kind of knowledge doesn't transform a person. Maybe it's on the way and it may be helpful. I don't mean it has no place at all. But when you dig it out of the marrow of your bones, when you see your own rehearsing and your own insecurity, you do it. It's of a totally different order of learning. And it has a potency that academic or rational knowledge doesn't have, by and large, doesn't seem to have. Okay, this person, the next step, as you can see, this can go on, I don't know, forever, but at least infinitely. If you know what I mean. (laughs) What the person found was in back of the insecurity was me, a being. And so, in a sense, the problem, because you could erase, let's say, through awareness and through understanding, the need to rehearse the insecurity, but there was still me. There was still this sense of separateness. So, in a way, that's our journey. And each one of us by just working where we find ourselves, wherever that is. For you, it may not be rehearsing. It could be anything. It could be eating. Or it could be the way you walk. But each one of those is a door. And as we bring simplicity, a simple awareness to it, it starts to happen. Something starts to happen. Let's say learning takes place. It's not that we try to extract something from it but we allow the learning to unfold. We allow the mind to reveal itself, to disclose itself. And it seems that it will do this if we can bring an open, non-judgmental kind of contact to the mind. If we approach the mind like the Grand Inquisitor, like an interrogator, trying to find out what's going on down there, it tightens up. And so it has a lot to do with what we're learning with the breath. We're learning how to surrender to the breath, to just let the breath be the breath without trying to program it or orchestrate it or shape it in any way whatsoever. And in developing that quality, it then becomes more possible to transfer that trust, that allowing to, let's say, rehearsing, if we find that in the mind, to let the mind that does rehearsing just do that instead of trying to edit it in some way. So the one aspect of this kind of learning seems clearly to be this ability to let go of calculating and scheming, doing this in order to get that, and listening and looking without any motive but the looking and the listening. With, um, it's, sometimes I feel it's close to an aesthetic motive. When you just look at, let's say, 
a work of art or nature, just for its own sake, is beautiful. Of course, and then the next moment you may then want to buy the painting, bring it home, and you know, get acknowledged for it, etc. And of course we do that to nature too, but I, I'm not referring to that. Just that simple um, direct perception. In order to do this learning, I think that there's a certain humility that has to come into play. And it's, uh, I don't know how it comes. It's not cultivated, it's because then that would be a humble person, which would, of course, be a block to it. The best image that comes to my mind of the challenge for us as adults comes from children. Sometimes when children ask questions, I don't know exactly what age, but it's pretty young. They don't know something. They really don't know. There's a lot that they don't understand. They look around and they don't know what things, I don't know what a doorknob is, or how to behave in a certain way, or how to do things that they see other people doing. And so they ask a question, and it's totally sincere. They ask a, a totally sincere question, and in the sincerity is complete ignorance and no shame about the ignorance. And I think that's crucial. They're not ashamed about the fact that they don't know. It, that has, they haven't been poisoned yet. In other words, the learning has not been attached to, assimilated by ego and achievement and status and getting into the university and all the, all the other things that happen to it. And so it's this famous don't know mind that the Zen masters talk about, which is a high, maybe the highest form of intelligence, which is this openness, uh, a willingness to acknowledge that you really don't know. And for there to be no shame, for that not even to be in an issue. Now, how to come to that I don't know, that's a difficult one, but it seems to me one of the ways is to keep noticing the many ways in which we aren't like that. For example, I've noticed that my own feeling is that very often in interviews people are not being totally truthful. I know that when I went to interviews or if I go to interviews, I find that my mind does that sometimes too. At a certain point I learned that that was absolutely idiotic on my part. In other words, you present a certain well-thought-out problem to the, to the teacher, whether it's here or wherever, and it selectively leave certain things out. Or let's just limit the whole notion of secrecy. It's something we don't want people to know about. Now, what is it that's being protected at that moment? One Sufi said that regarding keeping things secret, said that when you realize that God knows everything, you know, in terms of secrets, that there's nothing to keep from God, you're free. So we're keeping the secret, or we're pretending we're doing an impersonation of being knowledgeable, decisive. You know, I, I know the way it is, I got it down. It doesn't mean that we don't have some understanding. We all do. 
But that quality of, particularly in terms of our own consciousness, if we can spend the time here with that quality of innocence, that is, start from the beginning, like we don't know anything about ourselves. And perhaps question the validity of the way in which we live. This is a, a touchy one. Because all too easily what happens is it becomes another occasion to put ourselves down. Or when, we, when some self-knowledge is disclosed, again it becomes an occasion to put ourselves down. Because as they say around IMS, by and large, self-knowledge is bad news. <laughs> what, you're, what you're finding out about yourself, you just as soon not know. But that's only, a, in a way, a beginner's attitude towards it. It's not bad news. In fact, it's very good news. Because if it's true, if you've been walking around this way, with all these limitations and concealment and on and on, and it starts to come out and you find out that you're not quite what you have represented yourself as being to yourself and to others, and these images start getting shattered, isn't that why we're here? I mean, that's, it is a protective atmosphere. I think, I hope, that we're all very gentle with each other and supportive, because if you're doing what we're doing here, there's enough problems just being with yourself and being with all these different emotional states that come up. And so it's wonderful to have a, a context which, is, which supports all of us in, a, in this process of attempting to do it. An obstacle to this learning seems to me a major one, is identification. When we identify with something, and if you question identification, I know when I've done that, what I've seen is that I've identified with something in order to give myself strength. Basically the message is, me as I am is not enough. So if I identify with, and you plug in whatever it is, it can be some external organization or country, Buddhism, it could be anything. Somehow there's this feeling of me plus all these other people who are fantastic and are okay, and then you feel a lot better. If you're seeing the world from some angle, any angle at all, and if you're identifying with something, then you have an angle. We're looking at others from the vantage point of this particular attitude that we've identified with. And learning from that point of view has a lot to do with dealing with fear at the beginning. Maybe a lot. It's a, a tricky one because unless you can deal with fear, you can't learn. And yet we have to start somewhere. Because in order to bring real openness to what's happening to us, whether it's simply food as we eat it or some mind state, 
We have to make contact with it and there has to be this total openness so that we can allow it to be what it is so that we can truly learn what it is. And fear doesn't usually allow that. Fear is contorts and distorts the mind, bends it all out of shape. And so there's a difficult situation we face in that very early, we have, if we want to learn, we have to look at fear. And yet the fear is the very thing that's blocking us. And so we have to edge towards it and use whatever support we can get. Group support, swallowing hard, crying, whatever it is failing, coming back. And little by little, learning about what fear does to us. And as we see the stakes, we see how extraordinarily valuable fear is. Or is the, the very power that's in it, that drives us away from it, is exactly its value. In fact, I would say in general, things which challenge us a lot, and perhaps our inclination is to run away, are wonderful from the point of view of learning and opening up. Because when we're challenged, it takes us deeper into ourselves, into areas that are latent and buried. Let me... uh, An example comes to mind. It's a bit of a digression. I'd like to move back to identification, but this example may be helpful. A few years ago, there were a number of us who met with Krishnamurti for part of a week, for three hours each day, uh, and we would engage in a kind of discourse, a conversation. Perhaps many of you have read some of those books, dialogue. And this particular five days was devoted to fear. That is, we said, okay, let's... He didn't set the topic. We all came to a conclusion that we wanted to learn about fear. And so we went around and around and around on that with him. And of course, nobody gave a correct answer the entire week. With him, it's not possible. No matter what you do, you know, he pulls the rug out from under you. But the most powerful part of the whole week was the, the, last, three, the last three minutes. It was clear that everyone had to go, people had to catch planes, he had to leave. And we had gotten as far as we could. And we had gotten as far as we could in terms of dialogue. Whatever we learned, we were going to learn. And then he paused and told us a story, and it seemed like a totally irrelevant digression. And some people even started to fidget and wondered, you know, maybe he's going senile or something. What's happening? All of a sudden, he started to talk, and he said, um, and he put his hands like this, for those of you in back and see, just like cupping your hands. He said, the other day I was in Fifth Avenue with some friends and they took me to one of the uh, most prominent uh, jewelry stores on Fifth Avenue and they put in my hand one of the world's most valuable and beautiful diamonds. And so I held it in my hands and I looked at it and he was doing that. 
he was acting it out with total attention to what was a diamond in his hands. He said, and I examined the diamond and I saw the beauty and the, of the line and the light and everything about it was exquisite and I kept looking at it, bringing total attention to it. There was no thought and at a certain point there was no diamond. And then he quickly, very, very quickly, took the diamond and went with one hand like that and then, took, and then went with his other hand and said, put fear in the place of that diamond and look at fear that way because that's how valuable fear is. And that's, that's what we're edging towards. So it's learning the, the very amount of energy we spend running away from fear is, is freedom. It's in, it's in the fear, in the relaxing from that which we think we can't go near. And that's why, in a sense, um, as Vimala pointed out the other, uh, the other night, this planet is just teeming with bodhisattvas. They're just crawling all over the place. But we have to recognize what they're offering us, which is the opportunity to free ourselves. Maybe we'll just end there and leave identification for some other time. What I'm interested in, yeah. I hear you that you say uh, fear motivates us. And if you take fear away, what can replace fear? How about love? That's true. And that's the only. What? That's, but that's the ultimate one. Well, there's, you know, love and then there's love. <laughs> <laughs> We do the best we can. You know. The second one is this capital. Yes. Mm-hmm. Only reserved for special people. <laughs> yeah. What's bodhisattva, whatever that word was? Uh, oh, I don't know. It has a number of meanings. One is uh, someone who dedicates themselves to attaining enlightenment uh, in the service of others as well. Or is you dedicate yourself to your freedom as well as freeing others. Sometimes it, it has to do with sort of uh, the helpers of the Buddha. Anyone who's, who's dedicated to freedom, to liberating yourself and others, is a, can be called a bodhisattva. That's one way of looking at it. What, I, what I'd like to uh, approach now is my own feeling is that this awareness that we've been practicing for the, more than a week in some cases, it's in its nature that it sets things right. It sets things right. That's part of its job, awareness. It sets things right. In other words, when you learn, it's a satisfying feeling. And what I'm interested in is what has been happening this week for you? Or is, is there, uh, what kind of learning has been going on? Is anything, um, anything like what has been said tonight beginning to develop? Or is it developing or what? I won't, you know, do any Zen combat or anything like that. Just a simple question. Honestly, we've been working together for more than a week and I see signs that people are learning things and I would like to hear it from you in your own words. Um, I'm, 
realized how much I need approval, you know, in the course of sitting. I, I have a feeling that every action is, there's just a fraction of a moment's hesitation, you know, to make sure that uh, I, I please with this, with my approach, you know. Then I die to please at all times. And this becomes so painful to me. It colors everything I do, you know. I, I feel so invalid. Uh, uh, and what you're saying tonight about if, if your perception is clear, it brings the clear action of itself. You know, this is, this is a big, uh, big revelation to me because I think something has to come together to get adjusted here because I can't stand it anymore. It's can you begin to stand that can't standedness? Can I stand that? Can't standedness, because I think you have to start where you are. That's the jewel. For you, that's the jewel. Not what it might lead to. Not what it might lead to, which would just be an idea. That's why it's a, a, a state of vulnerability. Inquiring into the cost of this pleasing others. I think you, it sounds like you're almost at the end of your rope with it. Yeah. So that's, it's time for it to, like a ripe fruit, for it to just fall away. <laughs> I know there's enough already. Okay, but many people go through frustrating experiences over and over and over and over and over again and can speak quite intelligently how they do that over and over and over and over again. What I sense the difference is, is that we have a tool, we're beginning to develop a tool, and that tool is this direct attention. Otherwise, it's, we, we, do the, we do the act habitually, then we see it, we suffer, and then there's a bit of relief by talking about it, a catharsis to a priest, to a psychotherapist, to whoever. But it doesn't go deep enough, and so then it starts again, over and over and over. But a genuine being fed up with it, I think, is a, a huge help. But then it can't be punitive. In other words, you have to really get soft with it the next time it comes up, like right now. Is, there, is that process going on right now? Any attempt to please? No. no Good. No, oh. That's it. Just listening. This intelligence that I'm talking about, let me uh, bring it down to earth so that we don't make it into, it, it can be a lot of things, but let me pick the most humble example I can think of, or one of the most. Very often, uh, when you go to meditation groups, it's suggested that you sit straight. Okay? And, and people will then try to sit straight. Now, some people, as an act of conformity, in other words, as an external suggestion by an authority, it's good for you to sit straight. Okay, I'll do it. 
If they said it's good for you to sit crooked, you'd sit crooked. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that kind of di- that dimension. And maybe the person perfects sitting straight, but it doesn't come out of understanding. And that's why uh, sometimes what's very important is to begin to understand in your own body and mind the difference between sitting straight and not. Sometimes in a group we have in Cambridge, there's a couple of occasions where people are extremely resistant to it. You know, sort of like, well, it's arbitrary, why sit straight and all that. And so what we tried is an experiment, okay, in the next sitting, sit crooked. You know, really, and don't, don't feel uh, any requirement to straighten up and see what that's like. Okay, now, if you can, however you come to it, feel how the body, how the breathing is so much more free, how the, in a sense, the organs are grateful, that they, they're aligned a little bit more properly, that you're less likely to daydream, if you find this to be true, that uh, less likely to be sleepy, that there's some, I can't even put it into words, some sense of well-being. Maybe it's in the nature of things for a certain kind of, of dignity of the body to be able to sit a certain way. Not overdoing it. You know, it's not a kind of tight, rigid, military straight. But if you learn that from the inside, it's infinitely easier to sit straight and infinitely more valuable than if we just do a lot of things because we're told that this will result in some success. Okay, that act of intelligence is when we experience it ourselves. We see that, as a matter of fact, this is something that's correct. Something in the universe knows it. And so it's just easier to do it. and It has more power. And you can just multiply examples all over the place. I guess what I'm saying, in part, is that we're beginning to develop confidence in our own mind, in our own ability to take care of ourselves, to give ourselves an interview. And that's what I meant, in part, uh, a couple of evenings ago about questioning your own questions. Very often, if you bring awareness to your own questions, really listen to it. In other words, learn from what it is you are about to, to ask especially if it's a question that matters to you. And if it's not technical information, you know, what is the capital of, uh, you know, Lower Slobovia, and you you haven't read that, I don't mean information. Uh, Very often the answer is inside of us. And you realize you didn't have to go to the teacher at all. You know what to do. And if you're going to the teacher, it's for another reason. And that's okay too, then know what that is dependency or identification or wanting to make friends with the teacher or whatever it is. But understand that you have the capacity to answer your own question. And if you can't, that's intelligence too. You realize, I've done what I can. I've brought the clearest attention I can to my problem. I feel tremendously stuck. I'm going to bring it to someone else and and use that situation to continue to learn. Or even read a book about it. See, it's, it's not excluding anything. But it makes headquarters us. Or is the last step is us. And so anything that you learn here that's outside of yourself is borrowed unless you make it your own. Or is fine, hear it and all, but test it. See if it's true in your life. Because if you don't find that out, then it won't have any power to transform you. It will be nice. It'll be in your computer. It'll be information, more conditioning. 
and you'll sound more intelligent. Sound more intelligent. Whereas what we're talking about is, has a, a, a reality to it, and the test is in the quality of our life, in the quality of our consciousness. In a way, if we're, uh, the way the human race looks now, or each one of us, if the degree to which we have difficulties in our life, it's due to inattention. Or things are the way they are because they've not been investigated. Not really. Because in the light of investigation, much of this behavior could not go on. Okay, I'd like to hear... Can you see that the kind of learning I'm talking about is not... It could be anything. It's for you. It has nothing to do with anyone else, just you. Sure. The kind of learning that I've experienced uh, it has to do with sitting up straight, and that is walking straight. And discovering that I'm afraid that if I walk straight, people are going to perceive me as cocky or, or <laughs> having it together. And then they may challenge me and discover that I don't have it together, which frightens me, so I slouch. So I've got to be challenged. And, and that was a big discovery for me. And it, it, it tied in also with... Uh, um, I, I, I realized I, I don't rehearse um, conversations. I rehearse fights with people. With <laughs> <laughs> everyone I know. And I brought this up uh, earlier before, and I discovered now it has to do with standing up straight as well, that fear of, of if I can't win and, and have if, you know, if I, if I can't be a good fighter, then I don't have it together, then I'm not a good person. So it all kind of is, is coming together in, in the discovery that I'm afraid of being wrong or not having it together, so to speak. And, and so the fights and, and sitting up... Uh, yeah. Okay, so your mind has come to use it that way. But in and of itself, there's nothing wrong about standing straight. No. Right? No, yeah. no I, I've stood straight now for about a week and a half. No, <laughs> okay. 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 That's it. That's it. You see, it's one thing to learn it. And then the next thing is to live our understanding. See, now, in my, the way I hear what you said, you're living your understanding now. Because many people come to understanding and then hesitation, postponement, or maybe some other time in the future, what if, and all the rest. And they never quite make that step into action. And it, it can be a meditator's dilemma where you literally have the illusion that you'll just be able to sit all your problems away. If you can only sit on the cushion long enough, it'll all go away. But at some point, I don't know, unless you're going to spend your whole life on the cushion, which is rather doubtful, there has to be a connection with people, with situations, with, na- with nature. Now, if a person do- cannot live their understanding, let's say you come to an understanding and then you find you're hesitating, postponing a lot, then that's where we enter with inquiry. Then we bring awareness to that. Hmm, here I is, I find out I know exactly what to do, but I can't do it. Why? And so we bring this fresh, simple attention to that. And then perhaps out of that can come the action that you were able to to do in a very simple way.
Uh oh. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Okay. How do you think watching a breath builds attention? Why not discursive thinking? Why not what? A kind of dialogue with oneself. You mean we use that to. Uh, that to, uh, you know, examine our condition? Sure, that's also, in other words, to um, a dialogue with oneself. Okay, but you've been doing that all your life. It's called chronic introspection. Right. No, that's exactly right. Chronic introspection. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that has developed a certain concentration for you. Yeah. The breath isn't the only thing. You can develop concentration on making pizza. The Buddha listed 40, uh, let's say, official uh, objects to develop concentration. But I'm sure there are 40 million you know, particular individuals may develop concentration on something. Um, the breath is a very beautiful one. What, but what prompts your question? Or is, is it, what is uh, it? I, I guess because I'm terribly concrete. And um, I still haven't been able to make the connection yeah. between watching my breath, yeah. the, the concept of no thought, which is a difficult one for me to... Um, understand and uh, personal transformation. The, con- the concept of no thought is a concept. What we're talking about is no thought. Okay. I can't get there. Okay, but, but how would you, how, where would it be that you're trying to get? In other words, the, the breath is not concrete. Okay, if it's not concrete, is that what you're saying? Not concrete enough for you? No, the breath is, is concrete. Yeah. Um, but after a point, Your mind moves to standing up straight equals people challenging me equals, you know, so forth, or, you know, I want to be pleasing to other people. In other words, the mind leaps. Yeah. Okay, if you, if your mind didn't leave the breath, you wouldn't need to be here. In other words, the reason you're here is because your mind keeps leaving the breath. And so you have to, the training is the coming back, in one sense. I mean, it's more open. We're really taking in a lot. But let's say you're, you're developing that ability to stay with the particular expressions of the breath in the body. And you're not always doing it. Okay, I understand. But sometimes you're doing it. And, sometimes, and you're beginning to notice when you're not doing it. And then suddenly it's happening again. Okay, that's the training. Now, unfortunately, many people take that as a sign. Or as it, ambition is the problem. Right. Okay. Correct. Okay. All that we're doing is becoming more familiar with our breathing. Or is we're already breathing. Before you ever heard of meditation, you were doing that. And that all we're doing is we're, learning, we're becoming more familiar with it, more sensitive to it. Okay. But then the mind now finds out that this is a valuable activity. The ego finds that out. There's some cash value in it. It's not just breathing. It's... Uh, Anapanasati or shamatha, or some, it's a, will lead to enlightenment, will lead to very uh, absorbed states of absorption. And now, of course, it wants to get somewhere with it. Big problem. Before, it was just okay, you're just breathing. You already know how to do that, and we're just becoming more familiar with the breath. So then I would look at that. In other words, you have to see how you've only been here a short while, and 
you're already way ahead of the breath into what you think the breath will lead to. Imagine what the breath will lead to. Yeah, I'm looking for a, a clear roadmap. Okay. Roadmap is not the road. The, the breath is the road here. You may get what you want, but I think you'll get it not by trying to get there, because that's your imagination and that's blocking your ability to be with the breath in the present moment. See, it's a lot simpler. Okay, it's something like this. I, I understand what you're saying, Larry. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to also understand the process. In other words, if you were to ask me, how does somebody get better by talking? I could give you an explanation of, of how I think it happens. Um, I'm asking you the same question. How does somebody change by thinking about the breath? We're not thinking about the breath. We're just being aware of the breath. Okay. In other words, it sounds like your awareness is accompanied by a lot of thinking. So you're, the essence of what we're learning is not any thoughts about the breath. If that comes up, then you're aware of that as another happening in the mind. But it's just, I won't even put a word on it. It's just stirrings in the body. Okay, now, what, of what value, does it, what value is that? What's the process? How do you think that leads to transformation? In other words, you want a, a whole storyline as to what it leads to. That's what it sounds like. I'm trying to... It, it sounds like I'm not getting my question answered. Okay. Let, let me just give a, a hint at a few things that can come out of the breath, out of watching the breath. One was already mentioned. We're learning how to allow the breath to just be the breath, in other words, to follow its own nature. This is a skill that you may not value yet, but it's one that is being suggested is enormously valuable. Okay, so let's say you allow the breath in and you allow the breath out and Finally, you stop trying to control it and you just listen to it. And then it suddenly becomes able more and more to transfer that openness and that ability to allow to your emotional life. And let's say a deep-seated fear now comes out. Okay, And so then you get to know fear. Because unless you can say hello to it, you can't say goodbye to it. And we all want to skip that step of hello. And so the breath, in a way, is a model for the whole journey. Okay. That's, that's one kind of a. Yeah. That's, that's an explanation. Okay. Can no, I'm, I'm, I understand. No, Look. I'm not trying to be. Yeah. There, there are a couple of ways to teach this. The more traditional way, very often, would not give many explanations. They would just say, "Do it, and then see what see what you learn." Well, we. It's okay. I mean, Western, particularly Western intellectual people. In my own case, I had the exact same kind of mind. I still have you know, remnants of it. We won't budge unless somebody gives us a long explanation of where it's going to take us to. Unless you give me, I just want to see exactly where I'm going before I waste my brain waves on this one. <laughs> it's a very weird school that we have here. We're trying to learn, in other words, so much of our education has been learning, trying to learn how to get from A to B and then from B to C and then from C to D. And we're trying to learn how to get from A to A. You like that? I remember that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but only use it in Germany. Don't use it around here. Have you 
copyright? What? No. Copyright. <laughs> I freely give it to you. A gift of the Dharma. <laughs> Could we simplify it by saying that uh, watching the breath is just a training and being present, being here? With sure. Yeah, if I were to go on, I would say, yeah, absolutely. The breath is happening in the present moment. It's the only moment it, there is. And you're moving with it. And so you're learning how to be with what's happening in the present moment. There's so many things that come from the breath. You know, a reconditioning of the nervous system, which makes it easier, to, gives you more energy, etc. I've been experiencing a lot of dullness in the past week. Um, just a dark, heavy, sleepy mind, um, dozing. And I'm, I'm finding that my investigation has been very superficial. Um, too much on the surface and not enough. That moment-to-moment penetration. And I'm wondering how to sustain the, the word you used the other day, the urgency in this practice, um, just to keep it, you know, keep it going all the time, because I, I find it just, it's tiring, it's wearing. Um, yeah. And I don't think uh, we can simulate urgency. I mean, it's a little like, like love or getting a joke. You know, it's... Uh, and sometimes we, we genuinely don't have it. We genuinely don't have it. Or there isn't that... I don't care what Krishnamurti said, I don't have this sense of urgency. Uh, so the approach would, it seem, would seem to me... There are, you know, in a way, there are, you, you probably know this in the Tibetan tradition, ways of cultivating, uh, simulating, sort of lighting a fire under your behind, you know. In other words, the whole uh, reflecting on how, you know this one, how short life is and how precious the human birth is. And here it is kind of slipping through our fingers. And sometimes... You know, out of that can come a, a rush of energy that I can't afford to dilly dally. But personally, I don't use that. What I would do is, again, I would see. It sounds like you're trying to penetrate uh, dullness. You, so that's a dull mind trying to penetrate dullness. I'm not no, nothing personal, Roger. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, we trust each other. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let, let me give you an example of what I mean. Uh, once, it, when there were there were, uh, two Western monks and myself were in Korea, and we got as soon as we got there, we got sick, and for weeks we couldn't hold the food. And this retreat started, and there it was a koan, you know, and you're supposed to arouse great doubt and the great energy and. And the koan that we were working with, with was, what am I? And we could barely crawl along, you know, get to the, you know, get to the zendo, let alone ask the question, what am I? <laughs> you know, really the question was, what am I doing here? 
And how can I get back to the good old United States of America? And so we went to one of the teachers there and he said, um, it's true, you know, that uh, an ardent asking of the question is ideal. It's wonderful to really be on fire. You know, what am I? He said, but when you're sick, it can just be a small what am I? You know, not a big what am I? So it's sort of, you use a sick person's kind of energy. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you're, you're in it. You're kind of going with it as bit you're floating with it. You haven't given up, you're not lost in it, but you're not unrealistically pushing yourself because it won't work. And you'll just be more exhausted. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Dharma Seed dot org slash donate